seven minutes after 11 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Think Tank Thursday. Dave Rowland is going to be with us. Uh, he's taking on a case in St. Louis. Uh, I'm curious to find out all the details on that. And uh, this, uh, this report just came out from the House Democrats. And they are saying, they're alleging that Donald Trump unconstitutionally profited from, the, from his presidency. Uh, during his tenure in the White House, uh, that he got millions of dollars for his business empire from foreign governments. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is what you're going to hear, because they're not going to be able to, fe- to defend Joe Biden uh, on the amount of money that his family got from foreign governments. You're going to get the moral equivalence argument. Hey, yeah, you're looking at this, but uh, you're not talking about Donald Trump, and look what he did. That, I swear to you, that's what you're going to start hearing. That'll be their defense uh, on MSNBC and, and everywhere else. It'll be, hey, uh, Trump profited. So, you know, you're not talking about Trump. They're going to try and direct all the heat to Donald Trump. I'm not a Trump fan, but I'm telling you, uh, this is just really crazy uh, the way they keep going after this guy. It's, it's just, it's insane. Anyway, I don't have a lot of time to get on to, uh, to get into into the weeds on this because Mike Murphy has stumbled in. Well, actually, he walked in uh, just fine uh, to the studio. Como Buzz with one Z dot com. And Mike, good morning. Good morning to you, Gary. Mike. Yep, I'm here. There we go. All right. Good morning, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Scared me. Yo, it looked like you fell I didn't asleep. have a switch flip. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, we'll find a new producer. <laughs> um, all right, listen. Uh, I want to talk about this uh, LGBTQ thing. Uh, where is it going here in Columbia? Do you know? Yeah, sure. It's going to be, I'd say, in February, unless something really unusual happens. Can't imagine what it would be at this point. They will declare themselves, they will pass an ordinance. It will be an ordinance that declares themselves a sanctuary city. The practical effect, or the I shouldn't say the real effect. I don't. I don't know if I can tell you what it is. There's nothing that really happens other than they uh, uh, declare themselves welcoming to these uh, this LGBTQ community, and that we're some type of place where I guess they're welcome. Uh, uh, the, you know, the ordinance is as we've discussed. Uh, just basically instructs local anything that the city has control of to not pursue any type of action or to make it lowest priority. It doesn't say to violate the law or anything like that. So it has no particular practical effect. It's it's kind of a virtue signal, if if nothing else. But uh, at the last meeting, uh, all uh, six of the seven council members voted to move this forward. Their human uh, rights or their uh, Commission on Cultural Affairs has endorsed it. Uh, a long discussion with legal, uh, uh, whether it should be a resolution or an ordinance. Uh, ordinance tends to have more bite or more authority or they thought it signified more. So they agreed to make it an ordinance. So it went to the city attorney with a uh, six to one vote to uh, uh, pursue this. She's bringing it back. There'll be a public hearing. They're talking about February. It'll, a little bit depends on how their agenda gets crowded. But I think they have, I mean, it's quite obvious they have every intention of passing it. So we will be, by ordinance, a sanctuary city for whatever that means, probably certainly no later than this spring. Well, i got to tell you, it just sounds silly to me. It really does, sanctuary city. It, it's it's, it's, it's kind of meaningless. I shouldn't say it's meaningless. It's meaningless in this picture of it 
meaning anything real, I think it signifies something that's important to some people. So that's what's going to happen. Yeah, makes me crazy. All right. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of other stories here. Uh, there are four people running uh, for two seats on the school board. And I'm curious, to, does anybody lean politically to the right? Yes, John Potter. You might remember him from last year. He's he very much so. He ran last year. He ran a good campaign. I thought very well spoken. He runs the Facebook page uh, about holding Como accountable. He started that up during COVID. He's been very active and very outspoken, uh, but he's also very conservative, which I think gives him a snowball's chance of actually winning. I'm looking forward to talking to him. I'm, I actually am contacting him this week, trying to get him on the air here to, to discuss why he's doing it again. I, I'm not sure if it's to raise awareness or to give it a good shot, like he can maybe bring people out. But yeah, John Potter is very much a conservative and very much uh, calling out much of what's going on uh, uh, that he, you know, that certainly the conservatives are concerned about at pretty much any public school in America right now, but definitely in at uh, Columbia Public Schools. Well, actually, if he's the only conservative and there are three lefties, he stands a chance. Maybe. So here's the way I look at it. First of all, we got to find out who Alvin Cobbins is. I got to call in him this morning. We want to get him on the air. We're assuming he's uh, probably a uh, progressive, but we don't really know. So he just entered the race. He's been an unknown. He hasn't participated in elective politics here, although he's been active uh, as a volunteer behind the scenes. So we don't want to rush to some kind of judgment on him yet till we know. So that'll happen here in the next week or so. The rest we all do know. But where I would go with this is it's been, I got to get the number right, something like 11, 12, 13 straight candidates have all gone in with the endorsement of the Columbia, Missouri National Education Association. Uh, candidates who have gone in with that endorsement and lost it during their term have been voted out. Very, very good candidates, prominent people. So the the, the, the stronghold that has to be broken or what you got to look at is who's going to come away with the uh, NEA endorsement. Now, Jeannie Snodgrass, the incumbent, it's widely believed, will maintain her endorsement from the NEA. So the question becomes, who of the remaining two candidates gets that other endorsement? James Gordon is certainly a candidate for it. He's an extremely progressive candidate. Uh, he made that clear, almost progressive beyond what's comfortable for the uh, Columbia Mo NEA, if you can even imagine that. So it kind of comes down to between him and uh, Alvin Cobbins, who will get that endorsement, and they will be very much heavily favored to win once that happens. Um, I, I, I'm really limited on time here because <clears throat> in a couple of minutes, uh, Dave Rowland is going to be with us. Uh, but there were uh, two police officers uh, that got involved in an incident in front of Harpo's. And I couldn't understand why they, were, why they quit, why, why they threw in their towel, except, I guess, because they didn't expect to be supported they uh, by the city. They said they, the, the, based on the mayor's comments and the city manager's comments that came out within days after the incident, they said, coming from their mouths and, and, the, and the CPOA, the uh, Columbia Police Officers Association, is that they didn't feel like they were going to get supported. They didn't feel like they were going to get due process. So they just resigned and left. Uh, the, the criminal investigation, they were found there was no charges brought from that, which is no surprise. The, what's interesting is the uh, internal affairs investigation, once they resigned, ended. So if there's, there's some uh, a little bit of grousing out there, as now both officers have landed at Callaway County. They're both Callaway County Sheriff deputies. Uh, I think Callaway's happy to have them. Uh, but you could, the, 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 the police activists are sort of complaining that look at here. The internal affairs uh, investigation never got completed. And now these two guys are working somewhere else nearby. So that's what's kind of going on. Well, I, uh, you know, uh, lucky Callaway County. 
Uh, they got a couple of police officers not afraid to to uh, uh, do their job, to jump into the mix, and uh, I, I think uh, good for them. They found a, a place where there's... And, and They're going to get supported. And too bad for us. I think a lot of people who are uh, the back the blue kind of folks definitely feel that same way. Yeah, I, I think we've we've been watching this exodus from law enforcement in Colombia for a while. Uh, we're losing a lot of good uh, guys and gals, and this is just another example. Yeah, it's getting worse. It, uh, a year ago, we were talking about twenty twenty two officers positions open, and it was a crisis then. Now it's up past forty. And based on some, you know, information that I've gained in the last couple of weeks, I think it's going to get to 50. I don't think we bottomed out yet. So, yeah, there's a real crisis going on up there uh, at CPD and at City Hall about how we're going to keep this police force staffed. Como Buzz with one Z, ComoBuzz.com. Mike Murphy always has his ear to the ground. Uh, that's how he uh, gets all that dirt on his ear. Uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a terrible thing to do. Uh, Mike, thank you for being with thank us. Thank you, Gary. All right, buddy. Take care. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Dave Rowland is going to be with us next. Uh, he's going to talk about a, a lawsuit that apparently he's picking up in St. Louis. Um, and, and we'll find out what that's all about. I also want him to explain to you, and, and, and he did this uh, right after the Colorado decision. But I want him to explain to you in no uncertain terms why this uh, argument about him being about Trump being taken off the ballot is nonsense. It'll clear it up for you. It is just as simple as can be. And we'll do that next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is 20 minutes after 11 o'clock on a think tank Thursday, and that means Dave Rowland. He is on board, MoFreedom.org. Uh, Dave, before we get into some of these topics, and I know we're actually going to uh, uh, talk about uh, what's going on with Donald Trump uh, and and uh, these states taking him off the um, the ballot, but would you explain to the listeners why it is that this law does not apply to Donald Trump? Sure. So we're talking about the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in the wake of the Civil War. And this one provision of the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Clause, was adopted to make sure that people who had previously been um, government officials prior to the Civil War and then had basically defied their oaths and engaged in insurrection against the U.S. government, uh, that they could not then later hold office um, as part of the United States government. Um, This was crucial because after the Civil War, um, the voters in Georgia actually elected Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy. They elected him to Congress. And... Uh, a bunch of the people up there in Washington just kind of shook their heads and they're like, no, no, we are not going to allow the vice president of the Confederate States of America to come back and serve in the U.S. Congress. And so that's the background for this provision. Um, but it, what I think is really important about this, and, and again, I'll remind people, I am a textualist, and that means that I think we look at the words of the provision itself, and those are paramount. And the words of this provision specify to whom it applies. So it clearly applies to members of Congress. It applies to uh, members of the executive branch, officers in the executive branch. It applies to state officials, members of the judiciary. And it applies to electors for 
president and vice president. It does not say that it applies to the office of president or vice president. And so when you're in law school, one of the things that they teach you is a set of general rules of interpretation. And uh, one of the most basic rules of interpretation is that when a provision specifies one thing or a small set of things, then it only intends to apply to that one thing or that small set of things and nothing else. So the the Latin is translated that the expression of one thing means the exclusion of everything else. And so when you have this provision of of the 14th Amendment, and it makes clear that it applies to members of Congress. It makes it applies to certain people in the state governments. It applies to electors for president and vice president. But it doesn't say president or vice president themselves. The textualist way of interpreting that is that the people who drafted this did not intend for it to apply to the office of president and vice president. And the... Colorado Supreme Court, when they were addressing this, they looked at it and they said, well, it specifically mentions all these other positions. Surely that has to include president and vice president. They couldn't point to any part of the language that specifies president and vice president because it doesn't exist. It's not there. But they just kind of threw up their hands and they said, well, surely they intended to include office of president and vice president. And that's not a very good way of, of doing statutory interpretation. Um, and, and I think that, that they really made a mistake there. There is one other element to this that I don't think we talked about um, last time we talked about this on the air, Gary, uh, but one of the dissents in the Colorado Supreme Court case made a really interesting point, And that was that Congress, shortly after the 14th Amendment was ratified, adopted a statute that defined insurrection and provided penalties for insurrection. And that statute was on the books for a very, very long time. And the argument of the dissent was, look, the amendment itself gave Congress the authority to decide what insurrection was, and it did so. And so that then should become the guiding light in terms of uh, what's going to be considered participating in insurrection. And if someone has not been convicted, if they have not been tried, put on trial, told what they're charged with, given the opportunity to defend themselves and had a jury weigh in on it, then you by definition cannot be considered to have engaged in an insurrection. That was one of the one of the dissent's arguments. I don't know that I 100% agree with that dissent, but it certainly is a really interesting and potentially compelling argument. Um, but the long and the short of it is, is that Colorado has to certify its primary ballots tomorrow by state law. And they have already said, even though the Colorado support, uh, Supreme Court ruled the way that it did, 
President Trump's name will be listed on the ballot. And one of the things you and I talked about is if someone's name is left off of a ballot once it's been finalized, uh, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to add it back on. But if you have someone's name listed and then they are later deemed to be disqualified, you can always go back and strike it out or discount the votes that were cast for the uh, candidate who is later deemed to have been disqualified. And so this really is the smart move on Colorado's part to make sure that his name is going to be on the ballot unless and until the U.S. Supreme Court says otherwise. Um, And then if the Supreme Court decides they're going to weigh in on this, uh, and then if they end up saying that they agree with the Colorado Supreme Court, only then would you have President Trump's name stricken from the ballot or would you have the votes that were cast in his favor uh, eliminated or or uh, nullified uh, if if it's determined that he is not eligible? But well, here's, really the, here's what oh, here's ahead. what I fear. I fear that if uh, the if the Supreme Court uh, does what I think they're going to do and that's say, no, you can't take his name off the ballot, that the media and the Democrats are going to start screaming that it was, you know, it's because we have a, a right-leaning uh, Supreme Court. They're a bunch of conservatives. Yeah. They'll do whatever they can. They're they're uh, uh, Trump fans, MAGA Supreme Court. Uh, that's the direction I think they're going to go with this. I think you're absolutely right that that's what they're going to claim. And, and again, this is part of the broader problem that you and I have discussed for, for a couple of years now over the politicization of the judiciary. Um you know, you have had, particularly from the left in more recent years, an effort to delegitimize the Supreme Court by basically saying every decision they make is political, that there's there's no actual um, you know, legal reasoning being applied. It is strictly the political preferences of the justices instead of a legitimate effort to understand what the Constitution means and how it should be applied. Um, and, and we've always recognized that that's dangerous. It's dangerous when people on the, the right do it. It's dangerous when people on the left do it. It just so happens people on the left have been really pushing this over the last few years because for the first time and who knows how long, there's actually a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. But, but to delegitimize the Supreme Court um, is guaranteed to increase uh, partisan dissent and disapproval across the populace, and that's dangerous. We need to have confidence in our institution. Now, I, I want to be clear, there are certainly times when it seems like our institutions are not working properly, and we do need to be able to recognize and call out when our institutions of government are not working properly, but we can't be like Chicken Little. Um, we cannot throw out these unfounded accusations uh, because that then destabilizes our entire system, which depends on the trust of the people. This, to, to kind of look at the other side of this coin, this is the same concern I have with the way that Donald Trump and a lot of his supporters have relentlessly tried to um, discount the validity of elections. Like our system depends on the people having some level of confidence that our elections are fair and that the will of the people is being reflected in who is, uh, has been elected. 
All right, up against the clock, Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. And when we come back, he's picked up a case in St. Louis. I'm curious about this one. It's next on The Gary Nolan Show. This is The Gary Nolan Show. It's 1135, and the freedom fighter in Missouri is David Rowland. Dave Rowland is, uh, well, he's the attorney that loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. MoFreedom.org. And he apparently has picked up a new case, uh, a lawsuit uh, in St. Louis. What's going on? Well, one of the things that we have seen uh, increasingly over the last couple of years is that although Mayor Tashara Jones was elected with a claim that she was going to be a transparency mayor, and although they have uh, recently made a lot of public statements about the value of transparency, they're not very transparent at all when they don't want to be. Um, so we were contacted by this activist over there who had tried to get some records from the city. There was a, a very heated debate in the city about short-term rental regulations. And um, this citizen wanted to know what kind of communications the mayor's office and the board of aldermen were engaged in with the short-term rental industry like Airbnb and Verbo and some of these other uh, uh, industry participants. And so she asked for copies of these emails. They are absolutely and obviously open public records that must be produced. But she got this interesting response from uh, an attorney in the city councilor's office. And they said, well, we located roughly 1,300 emails, and before we can produce these emails, we have to convert them from their original electronic format into PDF format, and then we've got to look through all 1,300 of those emails and figure out which ones are actually responsive to your request. So the cost for this was going to be roughly $4,500. And there was going to be a long delay uh, associated with this as well. So Michelle Pona called me and she said, is there any way we can speed this up? And is there any way we can avoid this ridiculous expense? And I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, the Sunshine Law expressly says that if the citizen asks for the record in a particular format and that format's available, then the government has to give you the record in that format. Well, the original format for these emails is the kind of thing that can be read on just about any computer. Uh, if you've got Microsoft Outlook or even some other common email reading programs, you can read these files. And so I said, go back to them and tell them, number one, you want the records in their original format, so there shouldn't have to be any conversion. And number two, tell them that you want all of the emails. Because the only justification they gave for needing to engage in this review was to figure out what was responsive, what was actually being asked for, and what was not. Well, the way to solve that is you say, I want everything. And so she went back and she told them. She said, all right, I want all of the emails, and I want them in their original format. The city councilor's office says, nope, we don't have to do that. We are still going to convert all of these emails to this other format, and we're still going to engage in this search, and that means you are still going to have to pay us $4,500 before we'll produce these records. All right, so... This is an did, absolutely did they, ridiculous response. When, when they saw it was Dave Roland coming after them, um, did you know, the Freedom Fighter, did that make them think, well, 
maybe we don't have to do that after all. No. Well, I you would like to think that would, common yeah. sense would have prevailed, uh, but but instead we had to file the lawsuit. So we got that lawsuit filed uh, just before the new year, and uh, we're going to be moving forward on this. And this is actually a really important issue because one of the things that we have seen over the last few years is the government making a feint in the direction of complying, but then saying. If we comply, it's going to cost you some ridiculous amount of money. Uh, so in other words, they can say, well, we're not withholding the records. We're happy to give them to you. You just have to pay through the nose first. And, and it's this kind of a practice that is um, really defying the spirit of the Sunshine Law and continuing to obstruct citizen access to records uh, where in this situation it is just absolutely 100% obvious that she has a right to these records and it should only cost about about 30 bucks honestly um but but they are basically saying they're digging in their heels and saying unless she pays 4500 uh they will not produce the records so we're we're going to show them the error of their ways Gary <laughs> I am sure I am sure you will we're like sending in the gunfighter uh, listen, uh, when uh, uh, Jennifer Bukowski, who's a friend of mine uh, and a brilliant criminal defense attorney, uh, she talked to me and she said, when you get stopped by the police, if they ask you, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Uh, do you know why you're stopped? Any of those things that I should never answer those questions. Never. Um, because I could incriminate myself in something I didn't even do. Uh, but in California, there's a there's a change a coming. So uh, I, I want to get to that next. Let me get a phone call or two in here because uh, Mike is on the line to talk about uh, th this uh, sunshine law. Mike, good morning. Hey, good morning. I heard Dave talking about the lawsuit he's filing in St. Louis to uh, push back on these exorbitant fees for records. And uh, Columbia loves to do that. Uh, that is probably the number one way they discourage Sunshine Law requests. So I'm hoping you get some case law in place that will push back on this and make these cities think twice before they decide to charge somebody $4,500 for a bunch of emails. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really why we wanted to take on this issue. And and uh, we tackled an issue in Columbia a couple of years ago uh, where they were trying to prevent the family of a murder victim from yeah. getting copies of the records. And they were going to charge this family a huge amount of money. We, we got involved with that one. And in that situation, Gary, they actually did back down when they saw Dave Rowland come into it. Um, so we were happy to be able to help in that situation. But we weren't able to set any precedent because they came. Um, yeah. but if there are people in Colombia that are running into this similar kind of an issue, please have them submit potential case forms to the Freedom Center. Um, you know, that's how we you know review potential cases. That's how we try and find the best cases that highlight the particular injustice that's being done. Um, now, we do get a lot of requests. We've we got I want to say almost 60 case requests last year, which is a ton. Um, and, and so it's, it's a challenge to look through all of those. We can't always talk to the people that submit those requests or else we would never do anything else. But, but it is important that people keep sending those potential cases so that we can find the best possible situations to take on and hopefully to set a good precedent for the entire state. Well, good luck, Dave. It's an important case. 
I'm happy to pick up and keep yeah, talking why, while we're waiting for Gary to come on. So Gary uh, gave a lead in about the situation in California, and far be it from me to praise California, uh, although I am happy to praise Jim Bukowski, who is a fantastic attorney and uh, a great friend of the Freedom Center. Uh, but she was absolutely correct when police officers – come up to your car and try and bait you into giving them information. You should never volunteer information ever. But one of the good things that California has done is they oh, just passed back. a law that went into effect. Hey, Gary, I'm we're sorry. talking about the California law. No worries. Go ahead. So, so we're talking about this California law that just went into effect. And uh, they are now saying that police officers cannot begin an interaction with somebody that they're stopping until the officer tells them the purpose of the stop. In other words, no more, all right, well, do you know why I stopped you? Do you know why I pulled you over? No. So where are you coming from? Where are you going in such a hurry? Uh, they have to tell you why they stopped you. Were you changing lanes illegally? Were you speeding? Um, things like that. But that's important because it narrows down the way that they can treat the stop. So if they invite you to volunteer information and you give them information that then allows them to pursue new lines of questioning, maybe they'll come up with a reason that they need to inspect your vehicle or that they might suspect some form of wrongdoing that would allow them to detain you longer. Um, and, and if they have to state why they are stopping you at the very outset, it narrows down the basis for which they can keep you detained or uh, the basis on which they might be able to inspect your vehicle. So this is actually, I think, a really excellent step in the right direction. And for once, maybe California has done something that Missouri needs to emulate. I like it. And like I said, uh, no matter what, when the police stop you, don't answer any of those questions about where you've been, where you're going. Um, it, you know, it, it, am I under arrest? Uh, find out what's going on, but don't give them any information. Because even if you answer, the, even if you're perfectly innocent, you can answer a question the wrong way and end up, you know, the focus of a prosecution. Uh, it doesn't take much. It really doesn't. And we're not lawyers. Uh, listen, we've got... Uh, real real quick, if I, can, if I can follow up on that real quick, I encourage everybody, if you haven't seen it already... Look up on YouTube a video called Don't Talk to the Police. It's a video of a class at Regent University School of Law where the professor explains to his students, with the help of an actual police officer, why it's a terrible idea ever to volunteer information to the police. So Google it. Look it up on YouTube. The, the title is Don't Talk to the Police, and it is absolutely uh, fantastic information for anyone who might find themselves dealing with law enforcement. All right, I'm going to head to the phones here for just a second because somebody who is currently my favorite uh, state representative but won't be in a couple of years um, is on the line with us. Uh, it's not because I will like her less. It's just that she'll be term limited out. Uh, it is State Representative Cherie Reich. Good morning. Hi, Gary. Hi, Hi. Dave. Um, hey, Cherie. Yes, I'm in my last year, so December 31st, I'm out of there. But, um, Dave, my question is, uh, you're involved in a case out of Greene County dealing with uh, voter rolls or voting, and I had heard this week there might be a consent judgment that the judge hasn't signed yet, but could you kind of tell me a little bit about 
the status of that or what the consent judgment may say? I'm thrilled you asked. So for listeners who may remember, uh, the Greene County clerk, Shane Scholler, filed a lawsuit um, asking courts what he is allowed to do when it comes to releasing election-related records. Uh, we have been arguing about this for a little more than a year now. We have agreed on a consent judgment that would require them to turn over just about everything that my client has asked for. Um, the one element that, that limits this is if there is a, a circumstance where the information provided might be used to kind of unmask a voter and an individual voter's decisions, they're allowed to withhold only so much information as is absolutely necessary to ensure the secrecy of the ballot. Uh, we had to argue a little bit. They wanted to withhold more than I thought was appropriate. I held my, my position, and they have now agreed they're going to produce everything that we felt like they need to produce. Now, the question is, will the judge approve it? Um, we submitted the consent judgment just before the new year. The judge will almost always approve a consent judgment in a situation like this, but they're not required to. Um, and so we may see the judge come back and have a few more questions. Uh, the judge may want to modify the consent judgment in some way, but I feel really good about where we are. And I'm, I'm thrilled that, uh, Mr. Scholler has, has agreed to what we think the law is supposed to be in this case. Took a while to get him there, but we finally did get him there. So thank you so much for calling and asking. Thanks, because this is a huge impact, and this will affect statewide, I believe. Or will this only affect Greene County? Do you know? Well, because it's an agreement, there's probably not going to be an appeal. Um, what it will be is it will set an example. Um, okay. It will not be a binding precedent on other jurisdictions, but it will be a really good example of what the law should be. And then if the issue comes up in another uh, in another jurisdiction, another city, or another county, then the litigants will be able to point to this consent judgment and say, well, okay, the court agreed. This is the way the law should apply. Maybe you should do the same thing here. And on yeah, that happy note, on that yeah. happy note, I have to stop the conversation because in uh, uh, just We're a few seconds. Guys. Yeah. Thanks, Thank guys. you for, call, for calling, Bye -bye. Cherie. Take care. Glad to have you on the Gary Miller Show. It's the Zimmer Radio Network. It is 11.54. We got Glenn Beck coming up. Sean Hannity is going to be on board. Uh, boy, it, it, all great talkers are here. Uh, right now, uh, we've got Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. And I'm not entirely sure that uh, we're going to have time to get to very many more, uh, more stories here. Uh, Dave, welcome back. Uh, you, Thanks. And uh, let's uh, let me do let me see which one I want here. Wisconsin University Chancellor uh, is in trouble. Uh, he's making porn, and I looked it up, and he and, and I saw him uh, having uh, intimate relations with his wife. Uh, uh, so, for research purposes only, I'm sure. Only for an hour or two, uh, and then I. <laughs> And then I shut it right off. I, in fact, as soon as Gwen came home, I said, well, okay, I've had enough of this. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I did want to, you know, find out, what you know, it was a soft corn, hard, it was hardcore. Woo! I can't speak to that. But well, you take my word for it. If you want me to do more research, let me know. <laughs> that's that's up to you, man. Uh, but the really interesting <laughs> thing, as far as I'm concerned, is... Um, 
he argues that he's got a First Amendment defense here. So chancellor of a university, he gets fired for as far as we can tell, for no other reason that, uh, than that he is making these videos uh, that he then shares with people. And he says, well, look, this is First Amendment protected speech. They can't fire me because of this. And under many circumstances, he would be correct. So if this is just an ordinary Joe Schmo and they're making these videos and putting them out there, the government can't tell them they're they're not allowed to do this. They can't punish them for sharing these videos if they want to. Um, but the, the real distinction here may be the fact that he is in a position where his image in the community and, and for the people that the university is dealing with may have a material impact on the university itself. Uh, in other words, if people don't trust him or if they question his judgment, um, they may not be willing to engage in deals with the university on favorable terms. And that would materially disadvantage the university. So from that perspective, he's not being fired because of his speech or, or the expression that he engaged in, but rather because uh, the speech compromised his ability to do the job that they need him to do. Now, this would likely come out differently if we were talking about a professor, because professors have an additional layer of protection thanks to academic freedom. But um, that probably does not apply to a chancellor. So the long and the short of it is, although he would like to make a First Amendment case out of this, and although, to be honest, it's an intriguing argument, um, ultimately, I think if he tries to sue to keep his job, I don't think he's probably going to be successful. Well, usually, or at least very often, uh, you have a morals clause in your contract. Uh, wouldn't that be grounds to fire the guy? I don't know that it would because he was making the videos with his wife. Like, there's nothing immoral about engaging in these kinds of activities with your spouse. And arguably, it's not necessarily immoral to allow other people to see those videos. Um, I mean, it may be somewhat suspect, but uh, it's a really interesting question. But well, the good news is, Gary, I'll is have that to go back and, I'll have to go back. Apparently, and, and, he's making money off of this, and so maybe he doesn't need that other job. Yeah, I'll just have to go back and do some more some more homework. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Rowland, thank you for being with us. MoFreedom.org slash donate. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day, Carpe Diem. Grandbaby, honey, I'm coming home.